I also try to encourage people if, to like pick an area and try to like pick out the best spots in that area. And it takes a little bit of research and it takes a little bit of effort. But the more time, this is a general rule of life. The more time and the more effort you put into your preparation, the more successful your your experience is going to be. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Out and Back podcast presented by Gaia GPS. I'm your host, Shanti. And joining me again today is co-host is Mary Kokenauer, a.k.a. Hiker Midnight. Today, Mary and I are going to be catching up with hiker, guidebook author, and licensed therapist, Scott Turner. For the last eight years, Turner has been hiking over a thousand miles a year, and in the process became a writer for ModernHiker.com, which is probably the most read hiking blog in the American West. He's also written guidebooks for five national parks, as well as for his home of San Diego County. So today, we're going to get some insight from Scott on how to make the most out of any visit to a national park including insider tips for beating the crowds and ways to get off the beaten path. We're also going to do the podcast's first pack shakedown, where we run through everything in Scott's day hiking pack, and we're going to learn about the 10 essentials you need in your pack in order to survive an unplanned night outside. This is going to be a great show for anyone who's looking for tips on day hiking, regardless if you're new to hiking or if you've been doing it for decades. And of course, it's going to be great for anyone who's looking to get the most out of their next trip to a national park. So one real quick thing before we begin with Scott. Perhaps you're planning on traveling to a national park in the future, whether it's next week, next month, or one of your big trips for 2021 or beyond. Well, as part of your planning, you're going to want a park map so you can figure out what places to go and what things to see. And I've got some good news for you. Did you know that by getting a premium membership with Gaia GPS that you have access to all the visitor maps for the national parks? And not only that, if you're planning a day hike, maybe even if it's not in a national park, Gaia GPS provides you with so many topo map options, including USGS, US Forest Service, Nat Geo Trails Illustrated Maps, and of course the Gaia-based topo map is outstanding as well. Also wanted to let you know something else that's new. Gaia just released a new map layer that does satellite detection on wildfires. This new layer sources satellite data from NASA to show where wildfires are currently burning worldwide. You can pair this layer with your favorite map so you can plan reroutes around hotspots, predict likely trail closures, and you can stay safer during fire season. It's a great map that I highly recommend. All of these maps that I just mentioned are at your fingertips when you get a Gaia Premium membership. And you're in luck if you're listening to this, because right now, Gaia GPS is offering up to 50, 50% off on a premium membership to listeners of the podcast. With that discount... That means you can have a little extra dough to buy an extra pizza for yourself and your friends when you're done with your next big day hike. All you need to do to bag the discount is go to GaiaGPS.com slash podcast. Again, that's Gaia, G-A-I-A, GPS.com slash podcast. All right, everyone. Here we go with Scott Turner. Joining us today is hiker, author, and contributor Scott Turner. Thanks for being on the show today, Scott. Yeah, thanks for having me on. So let's see here. Over the years, you've done hundreds of trail descriptions. You've done quite a few books on hiking in national parks. So you're certainly a great resource for hikers and backpackers around the country. And we want to get into all the details about your work and talking specifically about the National Park Guides. But first, we always like to know your backstory and how you got to where you are today. So what was your exposure to the outdoors like as a kid? Yeah, my uh, folks, they 
they took a lot of road trips when we were young and we had, we had some family friends up in Montana, Idaho. Um, and so we took a lot of car trips very early on to places like whitefish. Um, I forget the town in Idaho, but we stopped at a lot of the national parks on the way Zion, Bryce Canyon. We stopped at Yellowstone, Grand Teton, Glacier National Park. Um, and we, we never really hiked much when we did these things, but we did enough camping and we did enough visiting of the parks for me to get a really solid idea of it. And I think the part of the reason why it stuck with me is my parents would get a lot of souvenir books. There are these, the, they still have them. There's these beautiful um, full color books that give an overview of the park and there's lots of beautiful pictures. And I really, it really caught me with Sequoia national parks. I'd look through the book and I'm like, oh my God, these trees are huge. And I had to go see them. So as an adult, I went to go and that start, sort of sparked um, like sparked this thing where I'd go up there at least two or three times a year to Sequoia. Um, that <laughs> initially I wasn't very good at hiking, so I didn't have a lot of skill or a lot of knowledge. I just kind of show up and run around and, you know, do the thing and then go home. But about Oh, it was like eight years ago in 2012, I really got into it seriously when I moved down to San Diego County. And uh, people had given me a copy of A Foot in a Field, San Diego County, which was at the time, it was the primary resource for San Diego hiking trails. And um, I got so into it that I was hiking about a thousand miles per year, just day hikes in between working and going to graduate school. And I hiked so much of that book that I became really, really familiar with the backcountry. So that's sort of the nutshell version of how I got into it. So it's interesting. Yeah, 2012 was where it kind of turned around and you first heard about this book. Like, was it something specific in the book or something specific on a hike you did as a result of the book that just launched it into something different for you? Well, I think part of it was that so I the reason why I moved to San Diego is I was living in Los Angeles and I was dating my who the person who would become my wife, she was in San Diego. And the way our schedules lined up is that I would have Friday off while she was still working and I'd get there. And rather than sit around in her apartment and not really, you know, just sit there and twiddle my thumbs, I tried to figure out what I could do. And she had a second edition copy of a foot in a field, San Diego. And I was just thumbing through it. And it was like, Oh, here's this place called Torrey Pines. That sounds interesting. Let me go check that out. And then Every time I'd go down there, I would leaf through this book trying to find an, a new experience so that I could fill my time. And I started to see more and more, and I started to dig into the book more and more. And it wasn't just a collection of different hikes. It was also a, a sort of textbook on how to hike in San Diego safely and how to make, you know, like good choices. Because prior to this, I wasn't always making great choices in terms of what I was bringing. And so I started to actually learn like, oh, you know, here are some things that you really need to do and really need to be careful of. So it was it wasn't just that I was getting exposed more and more to this landscape. It was also that I was starting to learn more and more from the book about how to hike safely. Scott, are you mostly a day hiker or do you backpack, too? Uh, it's a pretty good mix. I mean, the, the week to week stuff, a lot of times day hikes are just, I got again in a couple of hours of hiking. And so that's mostly day hikes, but, um, like do like four or five backpacking trips per year. Typically, um, there's a lot of stuff locally, um, Southern California. I mean, I know a lot of people who aren't from Southern California may have a certain image of it, but we've got it. We've got four national forests down here. We've got the largest state park in California. And so that opens up a ton of options for backpacking too. And San Diego is pretty diverse uh, landscape, isn't it? Yeah. 
yeah, the, the most diverse, the most biodiversity of any county in the United States. And what so, do you mean by that? So biodiversity, meaning just the sheer number of different species, um, whether that's plant or animal or um, just, you know, marine life as well, too. So when you look at just the variety of habitats, we we're in a zone where some ecosystems consistent with the Sierra are prevalent in certain areas, like in our higher elevations. So if you go to a place like Palomar Mountain, you're going to see stuff you'd expect to see in Yosemite. You're going to see conifers. You're going to see black oaks. You're going to see meadows. You're going to see all of that. But then we also have overlap from the Sonoran Desert, which occupies most of Baja, lots of Mexico, lots of Arizona. So we have all those species overlapping as well. And then we've got the coastal, um, the chaparral, the coastal sage scrub, all of this stuff sort of overlaps. And there's a ton of relic species here that are holdovers from like a much earlier time. Um, there are banana slugs in San Diego County, if you can believe that. Um, so it's it's there's a lot here. There's a lot to explore and see. Well, I was just wondering what's your favorite zone to hike in? I mean, I would have a hard time picking between the coastal and the mountain regions. <laughs> a lot of it, a lot of it gets dictated by what time of year it is. So right now in summertime, coast is the most comfortable because it gets pretty hot in the interior, but wintertime, like January, February, the desert's probably my favorite place to be. Um, during the shoulder seasons of November, like uh, fall, like October, November, we actually get pretty decent fall color down here in the mountains. So I like to go to the mountains. Uh, springtime can be really great with wildflowers. So it can be anywhere from the desert to the interior chaparral zones. It, it really like there's something for everybody at any time of year here. And so you start going off on these trips in San Diego. Um did you start like doing uh, trail descriptions or like written reports of your hikes that you were doing right away? Or was that something that evolved over time? Yeah, I started a blog right when I started doing it. Cause I, one of the things was after I was reading this book, I got this wild, I wild hair about, I'm going to hike a thousand miles in this year and see if I can do that. Just and that it was also at a time when I was going to graduate school, I was just finishing that up and I was moving and I was going to start a new job. So it was both a stress relief and it was a, um, you know, it was like a way for me to get to know the county um, so that my wife wasn't on the receiving end of all my needs. So it was like, I can go out and do stuff and leave her alone from time to time. Um, I have a bachelor's degree in English. So writing was something that I did all the time anyways. And I also studied a lot of photography when I was in college. So taking pictures was a big part of it for me, too. So I was going out, taking pictures, writing stuff, reading a foot in a field. And I just thought I'd start a blog. And I started writing and writing and writing. And it wasn't necessarily like a formal trip description. A lot of it was more experiential the way many blogs tend to be. Um, but as I started writing more and more, it started to become more about describing how to do certain things. So like getting an idea of just how to uh, work your way around on day hikes with backpacking, like things about having water sources, having essentials in your pack, things like that. Yeah, there was there was a fair amount of that. But a lot of it, too, is like what plants are these? What trees are these? Um, why is there water here? Why is there no water here? Why is it? Why are there so many more trees on the north facing slopes than on the south facing slopes? And at the time, I was also spending a lot of time reading about natural history, reading about plants, reading about geology, just learning more and more and more about the habitat I was in. So it was kind of building up a knowledge base for that. And part of that was inspired by a foot in a field because 
that book is peppered with all kinds of references to the natural history in San Diego County. And it gives you just enough to spark interest. And then it shows you where you can go and get more resources. So that was a huge, huge part of it for me too. But I was also learning more and more about like what kind of gear you carry, what kind of like, you know, all the different things that you need to know to do it safely. Here's what I want to know, because then you, I think, had two parts after this. You had um, you started working for Modern Hiker. And then I think actually, did you contribute again as well to A Foot in a Field to like a new edition of it? Yeah. So what happened was in December. No, no, no I'm sorry. Excuse me. Um, early winter of 2014, I started writing for Modern Hiker. So Modern Hiker is a Los Angeles based website for the people who don't know about it. And Modern Hiker was another resource I had used pretty extensively when I was planning hikes because I wasn't just hiking in San Diego. I'd go up to L.A. I'm from L.A., so I'd go up there pretty frequently. And um, I noticed that Modern Hiker had very little San Diego content. And because I was enjoying the hiking so much and enjoying the writing so much, I pitched him on whether I could actually write some San Diego content for the site. Um, since that time, I've written about 300 articles for Modern Hiker. So it's been it's been a really fun relationship with Casey, Casey Schreiner. He's the um, he started Modern Hiker. He continues to manage it and run it and contribute a lot of content for it. Um, so it turned out to be a really great relationship, a good outlet for learning how to write about trails. And then um, at the end of that year, um, so a little back up, back up a second. The author of A Foot in a Field passed away in 2011. And I was going through the book and using it all the time for inspiration, for reference, everything like that. And I was getting kind of worried about what was going to happen to it. And I wasn't the only one because this book had been around for 30 years at that point. And many of the people in San Diego County had learned where the trails were and what sort of hikes they could take through this book. And a lot of people had built up a real attachment to it. And so I was concerned that it was just going to become out of date and fall by the wayside and there'd be another book that took over for it. And so I, um, my wife encouraged me to pitch Wilderness Press, the publisher, on taking it over as a revising author, not as the full author, but I worked as a co-author. I had to rehike the entire book, all 250 hikes. I added another 50 hikes on top of that. And then how many this, miles was that? Um, I think it was 1600 miles, like total for all this stuff. I think that's what it amounted to in the end, and at least like maybe 250 to 300,000 feet of elevation gain. I call that commitment. Yeah, it was a lot. Yeah, it was, but it was a great experience too. So then you've gone through this and now you've had uh, your work for Modern Hiker and you've been doing your uh, revisions, your contributions to a foot in a field. So you're doing so many trail descriptions around uh, San Diego and Los Angeles, um, Southern California, uh, where you can find it just those areas or were you also hiking in other areas like Arizona, Utah? Yeah, no, I, I, sp I used to spend a lot of time going to Utah. In fact, that was like there are a series of parks that were instrumental in me getting interested in hiking. Sequoia and Kings Canyon was one. Joshua Tree was one. Zion and Bryce Canyon was one. And so I'd go out to Zion and Bryce Canyon and take trips out in that area. Um, did backpacking in the Grand Canyon. I went to Hawaii quite frequently and did a lot of hiking there. Um, we go to we go to Big Sky, Montana almost every summer. And so I do a lot of hiking in the Big Sky area. 
This is actually one of the things that I then want to know about if like I ever want to write a trail description and you are like a trail description guru because you've been writing hundreds of them over the years. How would you say you do a trail description from beginning to end? Like what are the key elements of a trail that you should focus on in a description? I focus on, first of all, special considerations, things that you need to know. Like, so for example, if you're in the Sierra and the trail starts at 9,500 feet, what do you need to know about acclimation? What do you need to know about sun exposure? What do you need to know about lightning? What do you need to know about bears, et cetera? So I try to put all the relevant safety in there. I also describe the trail from like step by step, like take a left at this junction, take a right at this junction, um, providing as much detail on the step by step part of it. Um, if it was just a step by step thing, I could just bullet point it all. And then that would probably be enough. But I also try to include whatever relevant history it might be present with the trail. So in Sequoia National Park, for example, there's a, a trail that goes to Circle Meadow. And one of the cool things about Circle Meadow is that they used to have a cattle uh, like a cattle ranch there, like a small cattle ranch. And that's where they'd provide the food for the people. And they'd slaughter the beef there, they'd prepare it, and then they'd cook it for people that were staying nearby. And you can still see the cabin there. It's still present. So that's a, that's a bit that I would add to it so that people get a deeper appreciation. I'd also talk about the natural history of it. Um, if there are any Native American features, um, I may or may not reference it because you want to be careful with Native American features. So Whatever is special about a specific trail, I'll include it. And there are times also where I'll talk about what's the best time to do this trail and what are the best conditions to hike the trail in. So, for example, is it better to hike a trail in the middle of the afternoon or if you're in the Sierra and you're on the eastern side, is it better to hike at sunrise so you can watch the sun come up over the Owens Valley? So I try to do all of that in 500 to 600 words or less. And so a lot of times it's really just an exercise in how succinct you can be, but using the sort of language that will also inspire someone to actually want to hike the trail. In 500, 600 words. Wow. That sounds difficult. <laughs> it, it, it can be, it, it can be, but the more you do, it's like anything, the more you do it. So if you wanted to get into trail description writing, it's more just, you keep writing, you keep writing. Like word count is super important. You watch your word count. If you start to creep up to like 800, 900 words, then it's like, there's a chance you're going off on tangents and you need to start making some pruning decisions. So yeah. So 500 words is the magic number then. It depends. So like anytime you get a, anytime you get a print hiking guide, the, the publisher is going to give you a word count target. So for the hike, the parks book, it was an 80,000 word count target. So I had to figure out how to describe 40 different trails, provide all the different, no, sorry, it wasn't that much. It was like 40,000. Sorry, I'm getting confused with another project I did. Uh, this is about 40,000 words. He had to figure out how you're going to describe 40 different trails. How are you going to put in all the necessary safety and rule regulation stuff? How are you going to describe the habitats? How are you going to give everybody what they need? And so a lot of it just kind of comes down to just density, but also like it's it's an interesting way to write. I, I can't really break it all down. I don't know how much time you want to spend on that, but a lot of it is just figuring out the best way to pr present the information in bite-sized packages. So Scott, after Modern Hiker and your um, San Diego guidebook, did you write some other guidebooks? 
Yeah. So a publisher called Mountaineers Books, which um, they're based out of Seattle and they produce some really beautiful books. Um, my friend Casey Schreiner, who I mentioned as the, the guy who started Modern Hiker, and another friend named Shante Salabert had both written books for Mountaineers and they said they had a really good experience. And Mountaineers was looking for somebody to write a few volumes for a new series they were putting out called Hike the Parks, which focus on specific national parks. And so initially I was going to do Joshua Tree and uh, Zion and Bryce Canyon, but then um, they needed one for Sequoia and Kings Canyon as well. So I've written three for them so far. Nice. And are these kind of like pocket size guidebooks and what do they focus on? Yes, they're pocket size, which is one of the things I really like about them. So they, they're portable. You can take them with you. They weigh less than a pound. And so it's really easy to haul them around with you. Their focus is on providing a sort of curated catalog of different hikes to help people sort through. So, so think about it like this. You go to Sequoia National Park. There are guides out there that have like hundreds of different routes you can take. And it's a bit overwhelming. So I know when people are going to these national parks like Sequoia, for example, they may be spending a day there. They may be spending two days there. And so they don't have time to hike everything. And so we were looking to create a guide that would help clarify the parks, give people a better understanding and appreciation for them, but also help their decision making so that they can pick out the routes that we're going to give them the best possible experience. Okay, so do you have uh, suggested hikes in there as well? Yeah, so I, I the the books all have itineraries for people who are going to be visiting the parks. So, for example, with Sequoia and Kings Canyon, I have a one day itinerary based just on Sequoia. I have a one day itinerary based just on Kings Canyon, and then I've got a three day itinerary that blends both of the parks. So that way, if people want to file, follow the itinerary, it's going to be a full day. But I picked out the hikes based on what are the like really essential things that everybody needs to see in order to get the like a taste of the full experience. I think a lot of people actually go to the national parks and just spend a single day in there. I mean, how can people get the most out of their park visit with just a one day inside the park? Well, I think preparation and planning is going to be key. So if you roll into a park, you may not know exactly what's there. Like without any preparation, you may not know what's there. Um, Maybe you stop at a visitor center. Maybe you don't. Maybe you just kind of show up and try to figure it out as you're there. And with each of these parks, there's a little bit of like you you have to kind of know the infrastructure. You have to kind of know where things are. You have to know like the transportation and the shuttle stuff. So there are a lot of resources that will help you figure all that stuff out beforehand because that's precious minutes spent trying to figure out, you know, how am I going to get around? How am I going to get to the trailhead? Um, I also, I highly recommend people get there early. Um, The earlier you get to any specific national park, the more likely you are to find parking, the more likely you are to have a quieter nature experience. You're going to see more wildlife. It's going to be more peaceful. Um, It also allows more time throughout the day to be able to experience a variety of things. I also recommend that people have targets that they want to pick out. Um, A lot of people, what I've noticed just observing things on social media, will try to see, like if they go to Yosemite, for example, they'll try to see Mariposa Grove, then they'll try to go to Tunnel View, then they'll try to see the waterfalls, then they're going to try to go to Tenaya Lake. And all of that, you're going to spend a tremendous amount of time in the car. And that's precious minutes spent not 
hiking. So when you, I also try to encourage people to like pick an area and try to like pick out the best spots in that area. And it takes a little bit of research and it takes a little bit of effort, but the more time, this is a general rule of life. The more time and the more effort you put into your preparation, the more successful your, your experience is going to be. So like on your one day itinerary, what kind of things would people be hitting on a one day itinerary? Like, so for example, for Sequoia on a one day trip, I would, I would probably steer people primarily to giant forest. Um, you'd, I would recommend that people would hike the Congress trail, which is it dips into the giant forest area and passes most of the notable trees. So that would give you an opportunity to see the best trees. And then I would also recommend that people would stop at Morro rock, which is it climbs up to the top of an exfoliation dome and you can see the great Western divide. You can see a massive Canyon, terrific views. Um, then I'd also have people stopping at Crescent meadow, which is the, one of the biggest and most beautiful meadows in that area. And so between the three of those things, you get a chance to see some history. You get to see the sequoias. You get to see the meadows. You get to see the views. Um, I, would all, I think I also threw in Tacopa Falls, which is Sequoia's biggest waterfall. Um, so those are all the primary attractions, and that's condensed into one full day. You see, I'm going to get out my uh, notepad and I'm going to start scribbling this down because four <laughs> of the five national parks that uh, you've had the books for, I've only been to one of them, uh, yeah. like thoroughly Zion. So, okay, I want to go down this list now. So Sequoia. Mm-hmm. Now, what's the one day itinerary on Kings Canyon? Oh, uh, God, I, I got to crack open the book because it's been a while since <laughs> I've looked at it. Um, no, I with Kings Canyon... Um, the, the recommendations I make, because and a part of this is just because of the way Kings Canyon is laid out. So mm-hmm. when you go to Kings Canyon, you drive through the big stump entrance and then you have a chance to stop in, in the village there. And the best hike in the village is probably going to be Grant Grove. So if you're going to Kings Canyon, Grant Grove's got the best sequoias and it's got a lot of the history because Grant Grove used to be a national park on its own. And the headquarters and all of the different facilities were all located right there within Grant Grove. So then you go beyond Grant Grove, and that takes you down into Kings Canyon. And inside Kings Canyon, there are a handful of different spots that you can't miss. So, for example, Roaring River Falls, which is a really easily accessible waterfall. Zumwalt Meadow, which is a very, very beautiful meadow on a bend in the Kings River. And then for, for anybody who's got a little bit of extra energy, I recommend Mist Falls, which is one of the biggest and best waterfalls. But the hike itself is absolutely stunning. So that would be like a one-day itinerary. It would be very full, but, you know, that, that would give you a taste of the best that Kings Canyon has to offer. That was kind of my next question. Are, are these itineraries keeping you going all day? Or are they <laughs> like, what if, what if you want to be marching down the trail all day? Are some of it kind of like just short day hikes or nature walks or? For sure. For sure. Yeah. So like with these itineraries, I do keep that in mind because I know that it's a lot. And Grant Grove is, for example, Grant Grove is a half a mile. Um, Roaring River Falls, you can walk to it from the road and it's like a 10 minute walk round trip. Zumwalt Meadows, a mile and a half. So that's two miles. Now, mist, the mist trail is a lot longer, but like, you know, altogether, that's like a 12 mile day, which for most moderately experienced and fit hikers, that's doable. So it's, it, it I, I do put a lot of thought into that. And for some people, it might be too much. So it, with, with any hiking guide, there's a bit of like, know your limits with these things. And you may have to cut things out, or you may add things based on how, like how ambitious you are. Do you recommend, you know, going to the visitor center or doing interpretive trails or guided hikes with the rangers? 
For sure. Yeah. No, the, um, the, so each of these parks put on a ton of wonderful interpretive programs and, you know, I try to put as much into the book as I can, but no one knows as much about these parks as the rangers. And so when you do an interpretive hike, or a ranger-led hike, you're not just going to get like the bare bones information on what makes a trail special. You're going to get more detailed stories about the natives that used to live there. You're going to get detailed stories on how the trail was built or what's around you. You're going to get a much deeper experience that way. And then with visitor centers, you know, park conditions are changing constantly. And what's presented in a book or a write-up or even on all trails or Gaia, the conditions are going to vary. So stopping into the visitor center gives you a chance to check out what the weather is going to be like. It gives you a chance to talk to the rangers to see if there are any concerns or cautions. Um, And it gives you a chance to read up on some of the interpretive stuff that they have present at each of the visitor centers. Now I need to know about Zion, Bryce, and Joshua Tree. (laughs) Yeah. What do you want to know about them? Well, so Zion, I've been there once. Um, I was there uh, about on a week-long trip with my wife, and we did some uh, general hiking through there. Specifically, we did the Narrows. We did Angel's Landing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm wondering, like, what is a good day hike section there, or just like a nice full day, like you've talked about for Sequoia and Kings Canyon, or even for Zion, what might be something that's off the beaten path that people might not know about, but it's still something that's really good. Yeah. My, one of my favorite trails there, like beyond the Narrows, beyond Angel's Landing is the West Rim Trail. And the West Rim Trail starts at Lava Point, which is the highest road accessible point in the park. And it follows a plateau and drops down into Zion Canyon right by this to the Angels Landing Trailhead. And the tricky part of it is the um, the logistics because it is a one way hike and it's a full day. So you can solve that either by leaving a car at either end, which is a lot of time spent driving or Zion Adventure Company will shuttle people up to Lava Point. And from there, you can just walk back, take the shuttle back into town. So that experience, you start up at about eight, 9,000 feet, I believe. You follow the West Rim Trail down, down, down. And then you start to drop into Zion Canyon. So you go through all the different geological layers. You see like just crazy views in so many different directions. And then you drop down to Scout Landing and you can opt- you have an option of going up Angel's Landing if you want. So it tacks on one of the most popular routes. Any, any hiking trail where Angel's Landing is an afterthought is going to be a good experience. So then, then you drop down the Angel's Landing Trail and that's, that's your day. That, that is my favorite hike in that park. And then uh, Joshua Tree is the other one. Joshua Tree, I've never been to hear amazing things about it all the time. Um, And actually, for Joshua Tree, aren't we coming up on a better time of year to be hitting it? Um, Yeah, the Joshua Tree. So a lot of people do go to Joshua Tree in the summer, but for people who don't have a lot of familiarity with the Southern California deserts, uh, Joshua Tree routinely hits 105, 110 degrees, even in the higher elevation of the park. And that's that's consistent from the end of May all the way into Labor Day. Um, so right around October, the temperatures start to cool down. Um, November, December, January, um, February and March are the optimal times to go there because the temperatures are going to be very mild. Um, it can get surprisingly cold in Joshua Tree, too. Like last year, there was a storm that dropped a foot and a half of snow above 4000 feet. Um, so there's, there's a lot of weather va- variation there. A lot of people just think it's a lot of stabby plants and kitty litter, but there's, 
there's a lot going on there. So being aware of the weather patterns is really crucial. And that's why the, the prime time for Joshua trees typically from fall to spring. What's a recommended uh, off the beaten path uh, or like recommended must see place in Joshua tree? Uh, it's, I wouldn't say it's necessarily off the beaten path because it is a fairly popular hiking route. Um, but the, the two best things, the, the two, I won't say the best things, there's, that's really subjective, but the two primary um, attractions in Joshua Tree are the Joshua Trees themselves and the granite boulders. So to get the best dose of both, my favorite route for that is Willow Hole. And Willow Hole starts from the Boy Scout Trailhead follows the Boy Scout Trail north through a huge Joshua Tree forest, and then it splits off of the Boy Scout Trail and takes a, follows a wash into the Wonderland of Rocks. Uh, the Wonderland of Rocks is a maze-like formation of granite boulders that uh, it's very difficult to navigate through there if you don't have any support. And this is one of the only routes that has a formalized trail with some markings and guidance. So that can get you deep into the, the Wonderland of Rocks to a, an oasis, that is instead of a palm oasis, which is the common like the common oasis for the Southern California desert. This is a willow oasis, um, willows being fairly water dependent trees. And so when you go there, there's this nice little shady grove of willow trees and you're you're tucked into a bowl that's surrounded by these towering granite formations that that's the one I recommend the most because it gives you just about everything you'd want to see for like the, the quintessential Joshua tree experience. And Joshua trees are so cool. They're like almost otherworldly for people who haven't seen them, huh? For sure. Yeah. The, um, the, the legend is that the trees got their name because the Mormons were passing through and they thought it reminded them of Joshua um, in like, kind of like in supplication and just the crazy twisted forms of them there, especially if you go during uh, sunrise or sunset, when the light gets low, then it becomes even more eerie and otherworldly there. So I, I'm presuming a lot of the itineraries that you put together, they often go to the most popular or most sought after points of interest in a park. Am I right about that? Pretty much. Yeah, pretty much. How do you avoid the crowds then, Scott? Tell us the answer to this. Well, first and foremost, when I'm going and doing these things, I always get started really early. And when I say really early, like it's going to make you wince early. So I know that a lot of people don't want to get up early and don't want to hit the trails, but the, the advantage to that is you get to the park, you get the parking spot you want, you have the trails to yourself. And early morning conditions are often the nicest conditions of the day. Um, the light is low, it's prettier, there's more wildlife, there's birdsong. Um, that, if you find a good base camp in the area you want to explore, you get there early and then you just start from, you operate from there. Um, going in the off season can help. Um, I know Joshua trees is a little tricky with the off season because off season summertime and it's dangerous to hike when it's 110 outside. Um, but for places like Zion, my favorite time to go to Zion is not during the summer because it can be a hundred degrees in Zion during the summer. It's actually November. So November comes around, it's mild. Sometimes they get storms, sometimes it's cold, but most of the time it's sunny. And the fall color starts to kick in in Zion Canyon. And that, you know, when you see the orange leaves contrasted against the red, um, that's very beautiful. And there's not nearly as many people there. Um, spring can be a really nice time, like earlier spring. The, the thing is, the conditions aren't always optimal. They aren't always like the famous, beautiful conditions that you would expect. But 
that's what draws people. So if you're going at a time where you're, like most people aren't being drawn to the park, you're going to get a chance to have a, a quieter um, experience. And then the other part of it too, yes, I know the itineraries are designed for the park visitor who wants to see the best of the park, but there are also a ton of routes in this book that are off the beaten path. They're harder, they're longer, they're more obscure. The, um, the destinations are slightly more subtle, so it doesn't draw as many people. So, I mean, if I just wanted to put a book that had like the five best hikes, I mean, that's just, I could just make a listicle article on, you know, on, on a blog, but these book, these books also are designed to have, you know, what are the deep cuts, you know, what are some of the off the beaten path hikes that you can take? And some of the good feedback I've gotten is from people who have hiked in these places year after year. And they've looked at my books expecting that they were going to have done everything, but there was a lot of stuff in there that they didn't even know about. So I guess, I guess the big thing would be, you know, just seek out ones that you haven't heard of. And there's a really good chance that if you do that, there are going to be far fewer people on it. And again, to clarify, these uh, hikes in your book, they're all day hikes, or do any of them involve overnight backpacking? A lot of them do. Over, they do double as overnight routes. So I told you about the West Rim Trail. So I told you about the West Rim. There's, uh, I think there's nine different campsites that you can get assigned to to do it as an overnight hike. In fact, it's part of the, the Trans-Zion route, which starts in the Kolob Canyon section, crosses the park, drops into the canyon, and then goes to the east side of the park. So it's like about a, a quarter of the trans, maybe like a quarter to 20% of the Trans-Zion route. Uh, route. And then um, anywhere that it does allow for backpacking, I indicate that. Um, I'd say maybe like a quarter, like 20% to a quarter of the hikes in each book are trails that you could do as an overnight. We're curious to know about like, what is your day hiking pack like? Um, you have had logged so many miles over the years of day hiking. So yeah, we want to know what's in the expert's pack. What are the essentials? Well, it's a pack dump here. I, yeah. thought, I thought you wanted to talk about how it looked and I was going to say it's getting pretty ratty. Uh, <laughs> ratty is good. No, yeah, we want it to look ratty. No, the big thing is dumping the ratty pack. And all right, what have we got? Yeah, um, pack dump. I always carry a lot more water than I think I'm going to drink. So even, even on a cool day, I'm usually bringing about a gallon of water. And that's like one place I would start for everybody is always bring way more water. Um, dehydration and heat exhaustion that happens in any of the places that we're talking about. And so if you have water that can help you out, I always bring more food than I'm going to be able to eat. Um, just have like a big stash of just like high calorie foods that I'm going to be able to snack on. And that's partially because you know, sometimes I underestimate how hard something's going to be and I need more energy. So it's always good to have that on hand as opposed to, oh my God, there's still five miles left and now I'm starving. Um, I bring, I bring two different forms of navigation. Um, I usually bring a map and a compass because I'm still fairly old school and I like to have that as a reference, but I also utilize different navigation tools on applications as a reference point, but I also use them to record. I use Gaia quite a bit to record, um, GPS tracks, um, always sun exposure. Um, I'm fair skinned, so I, I could get really bad sunburns and skin cancer and things like that. So I typically wear a wide brim hat that's going to take the sun off of me, neck gaiter, um, long sleeve shirts, just to try to provide as much sun protection as possible. Um, the footwear I choose is pretty important as, as the clothes I wear. I don't wear any cotton. I try to keep everything as synthetic as possible because cotton it absorbs a lot of moisture and it stays wet and that could lead to hypothermia issues. Um, I always have a camera 
um, just because I love like photography is both a documentation thing, but it's also a just an, a creative outlet for me. Um, even if I wasn't writing, I'd still be taking pictures all the time. And um, even though we're in Southern California and it's famous for being sunny all the time, I always have a rain poncho. Um, the rain poncho, I can double that into an emergency shelter if I need to um, with the trekking poles that I always have. And then I always have a multi-tool too, because the multi-tool can, most of the time I'm using it to cut up avocados, but you know, in a pinch, it can get me out of a jam. What's your favorite uh, snack or lunch that you take? You know, if it, if it's, if it's the summertime fruit for, you know, like it used to be like, what's the, like, what's the grossest thing I can eat right now? Because I can, I feel like I can justify it by all the calories I'm burning. But the more time I spend hiking, the more I just want to have fresh fruit like watermelon, cherries, apples, every, everything I can get my hands on because it's, there's just something about having something cool and juicy when you're eat, when you're hiking outside in a dry place. It's really, really yeah. nice. It's super refreshing. And what's cool about day hiking is you don't have to worry about the weight. So you can basically take whatever you want with you. Yeah. The, from time to time, there may or may not be some kind of beverage in the bag. I, I cannot confirm or deny that, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> No, no, no. Yeah, some of those some of those weight issues go out the window when you're you're day hiking for sure. There was another one I wanted to ask um, about uh, footwear. Do you go with boots or do you go with like trail runners? I go with trail runners. So I um I'm not I'm not an expert on human anatomy, but my experience with boots has been that one, it gives me a ton of blisters, and two, like I don't feel like it really supports or stabilizes my ankles all that much. So when I started wearing trail runners, it just felt much more comfortable and much more natural. Um, they're lighter weight. My feet don't get as sweaty. Um, they're, the, the brand I wear is Ultra, and I choose those specifically because they have a very wide toe box, and I've got, I've got fat hobbit feet. So being able to wear the Ultras, is the, they're the most comfortable brand I've found so far. So I wear those pretty much across the board. The only time I'll switch it up is if I'm snow hiking. Um, so it's snow hiking. I've got like a, a proper pair of waterproof boots, but everything else is ultra. You kind of made this list of all the things you carry. Is it, uh, noted in your book anywhere? Yeah. So I, I referenced most of the stuff that I reference as part of the 10 essentials and the 10 essentials is actually like was something in an outgrowth of mountaineers books. Like, well, they're not just mountaineers books. It's an organization that does all kinds of outdoor advocacy. Um, but they put together this list of essentials because these are the different items that you need to survive an unplanned night outside. And nobody plans when they, when they go on a day hike, they don't plan to have to sleep in a crevice in you know the middle of nowhere because an accident happened, but those things do happen. And I, if I'm doing something local, I don't always carry the 10 essentials. I'll be really honest. So if I'm just going up the hill behind my house, I'm not going to carry like a, an emergency shelter, but I do a lot of remote stuff in a lot of cross country navigation and a lot of remote areas. And so I bring all that stuff because I never know exactly what's going to happen. And I do have a locator beacon that I'll use too, because my wife has a lot of faith in what I'm doing and my abilities, but she also wants to know that I can get out of there in a, in a pinch. So the, the essentials are really just there to help people prepare for the unexpected. Do the guides include things to do for people who may not be able to hike, like viewpoints, sights to see, um, like 
uh, rafting, anything like that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I can't touch on everything again, because I'm working within a really strict, like Ruth in really strict parameters. But for example, Joshua tree, um, it has a number of different roadside attractions that attract a lot of people. And so we include that into the itineraries. Um, one example in Joshua tree is keys view, which is there. It's at the, the rim of the little San Bernardino mountains that overlooks the Coachella Valley. So it's about 5,000 feet and below the Coachella Valley is at about 500 to 1,000 feet. But then there are 11,000 foot mountains to the west. And then there's the Salton Trough, which is below sea level to the east. So that's something that people don't, you don't want to miss that because that's a really interesting place. It's beautiful views. So I describe that as well. And I do weave them into the itineraries because I know not everybody's going to want to go there and climb like a 10 mile cross country mountain. So I try to, it's, it's like one of those things like trying to cast a really broad net so that everybody has a chance to enjoy something. And we're coming up on fall here, Scott, what are some great places to hike in the fall season? Uh, Again, I mentioned Zion. It's, it's so nice in, in fall. So if people like the school's back in session, so not nearly as many people are going to the park. Um, That's a really brilliant place. This is, I, I feel like I'm giving away a secret, but I'm going to share it anyways. Um, in Sequoia National Park, there's a place called Mineral King. It's a, a valley that's set up against the uh, Great Western Divide, which is a ridge of mountains of about 12, 13,000 feet. And so Mineral King's at the base of that. And because of its elevation, it's got huge groves of aspen trees. And if you go there in early October, all those aspen trees turn gold. So, you know, California is not known for its fall color, but if you go into Mineral King, you get the sort of fall color experience you might expect to see in places like Colorado, Wyoming, Montana. You're, are you in San Diego right now? Yeah, I'm in North County, San Diego in the city of Carlsbad. Okay. And you guys have a lot of fires going on in California. Is that right? How's the smoke down in your area? Today's not so bad. Um, the marine layers pulled in and it's sticking around today, which is, it hasn't been that way for a long time, but yesterday was really bad. The sky was gray. It looked like the apocalypse. It was pretty bad. So we, in San Diego, we had mostly escaped the worst of the fires, which are all up in the Northern half of the state. Um, But one started down by the Mexico border recently. And now that one's picking up speed. Yeah. We're just starting to get some cool weather up here in Montana and get our fire to lay down. So um, yeah, let's hope, hope for the same in California. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's tricky though, because right now it's, it's early September and our fire season really peaks at the end of September and through the middle of October when all the Santa Ana winds kick up um, North, they're Northeastern winds that blow in from the desert and they're all very hot and dry. And so that's when the worst of the fires tend to happen. So we're just inching up on the worst of the season and we've already had a record season in California. And it's so inconvenient for us in Utah and Colorado. How dare you send all that smoke out to us? <laughs> well, just, just rest assured that if, if the northeast winds kick up and start blow, burning, like blowing, it's going to blow everything out to sea. So, so the Santa Ana and neat winds are bad news for us, but for you guys, it's probably a good thing. No, obviously it's yeah, it's tug in cheek. We obviously hope everybody's doing well with these fires. It's, yeah, me too. It's crazy what we're seeing going on in the news these days. So. Yeah, yeah. What I want to know, Scott, is what does the future have for you? Do you have new books? Do you have new trail descriptions coming? Yes, I have just turned in a manuscript, and I'm sorry I can't give you a ton of details on it, um, but I've just turned in a manuscript for a book I wrote on uh, Yosemite National Park. 
Um, I'm going to have to be pretty coy on, you know, what that book entails and what it covers, but I am extremely excited about it. Um, I feel like if you're going to, if you're a trail rider and if you love to explore places, Yosemite is sort of the crown jewel. And you asked me what the future holds. It's like, it's like one of those things. It's like, where do you go from Yosemite? So <laughs> as far as, as far as the future beyond that, I am contemplating additional books, but you know, like there's, there's so many different things to see. One of the, one of the downsides of doing these books is that like, I've, I've been doing this now for six years and through the six years I've been doing it, this is the first time I didn't have a book to go scout. So there is part of me that just wants to kind of fart around and <laughs> see all the stuff that I've been wanting to see, but couldn't go do because I had to go do another trip to Yosemite or Sequoia or whatever. I mean, first world problems, right? I mean, I should not like, I'm not at all complaining about that, but there's, there's a lot of stuff I want to do. And a lot of times when I do these books, I do them by myself. So getting a chance to go out with friends, especially after like, you know, six months almost of being shut inside, um, that would be really nice for me. I would really enjoy that. And writing's not your only gig, is it? No, I, my day job, um, my day job is as a marriage and family therapist. So I, um, I do that four days a week and I try to help people through all kinds of emotional and um, different mood issues. I'm actually curious to know, like how is hiking, has hiking been able to assist you in your therapy work? Like, has it given you a teaching of the world, a better understanding of the world that you then apply into your therapy? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, First of all, it helps me manage my stress. Um, so that that allows me to come into session without a lot of extra baggage that that I then don't have to fight through um, in order to be clear and present for who I'm working with. Um, but there's a lot of stuff in nature that kind of, you know, like we are, we often forget because we live in boxes and drive around in little metal cans and you know like we, we kind of we kind of have this illusion reinforced that we're not somehow part of nature and so much of what happens with people and psychological processes and developmental processes you can see that reflected in the natural world and sometimes it's as simple as me using different hiking metaphors especially for some of those who are a little bit more outdoor inclined when I'm like working with them, sometimes it's, you know, helping and using analogies to help illustrate different principles. So like, for example, with, with children, you know, like, like teaching people how to nurture children who might have emotional issues. An analogy I might make is that like, if you look at, if you plant one tree in the desert and you plant one tree next to a river, you know, which tree is going to do the best. And so then that kind of becomes a springboard for helping people realize like, and learn how you can be more nurturing and supportive for children. So it, it comes from a lot of different areas. And I guess the other part of that too, is that I often bring in some of the research that has come up over the past decade or so about what sort of impacts hiking can have on people as far as their mood, their stress, their, all these different things, attention span. Um, so I will share that with people to try to help build up their, their existing coping mechanisms. So we always like to wrap these things up uh, by asking three quick closing questions for you. So here's my first one. If you could only go to one national park ever again, which would it be and why? Sequoia. Um, why? 
It's the first park for me, the first one I really got into, and I've got the deepest attachment to it. And it has the widest variety of things that I love. Um, it's got great backcountry. It's got great trees. It's got great waterfalls. It's got great wildlife. It's got everything that I really want out of a park experience. And I know it like the back of my hand. So I, I don't think I'd ever get tired of it. Number two, favorite place to go hiking or backpacking that isn't a national park and why? Oof. Um, hmm. <laughs> oh God, that's, that's so tough. I'm the worst with these questions. Everyone tries to pin me down on what's your favorite. And it's like, I I've stayed got- up all night working on these questions preparing for today. So it's okay. <laughs> I can't cop out on you now, huh? Um, <laughs> I can, I, pr- no, I'll just pick one. I'll just say Anza Borrego desert state park. And why, um, Anza Borrego has a very liberal camping policy. So you can show up and if you're in a car, you can camp along any roadside provided you follow basic rules. Like don't have ground fires, pack out everything that you pack in. There's zero red tape for backpacking. So I can roll in, pick a peak, pick a valley, pick a canyon, hike in, set up, nobody. So it's despite being in the midst of one of the major metropolitan areas of the world, you can find solitude with very little effort. In relation to downtown San Diego, where exactly is that? It's in the eastern half of the county. So it's about, I mean, it's big. It's big. It's not, it's like 680,000 acres. So it covers a pretty wide swath, but it takes up about the, the eastern third or eastern half of San Diego County. No, Eastern Third. And from downtown to get to the southern half of the park, it would take you about an hour and a half to get to the northern half of the park around Brago Springs. It's probably closer to two. Last one. Now, this one is in two parts, actually. Uh, Do you ever eat Pop-Tarts when you're hiking? Yeah, um, I got a lot of crap for it, too. There's a, okay. there's a guy well, that's good. You have my yeah. blessings on this. One. Yeah. I love you two have something in common then. There we go. You got it. We had a prior episode where we talked with backcountry foodie and pop tarts was a key element of the conversation. So the actual, so the actual question, what is your favorite flavor of pop tart for hiking? Brown sugar, brown the, sugar, yeah, cinnamon. The brown sugar, cinnamon one. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's good. it's so good. I mean, cause the other ones, I feel like you have to toast them and heat them up to really get them to taste good. Um, the brown sugar one, I like it just as much fresh out of the bag as I do like it toast toasted. And I mean, like, I don't see why people would hate on pop tarts so much because it's so calorically dense. There's like, if you're on a backpacking trip, all you really need to do is just keep shoving calories in your face. And that's like, it's efficient and it tastes good enough. Yeah. One pack, 400 calories. Usually, um, have you ever had the strawberry milkshake? No, no, I didn't realize that pop tarts had evolved so much. They have. They are getting very, very intelligent over there. It's, yeah, strawberry milkshake and brown sugar cinnamon have been the uh, two that I've been taking out with me recently. Used them a ton on the AT. Strawberry milkshake. That sounds like it brings all the boys to the yard. (laughs) And it is better than all the others. (laughs) Better than yours, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Backcountry foodie would not approve of this. Sorry, Aaron, if you're listening. (laughs) With all due respect to, you know, like more sophisticated palates in the backcountry, I mean, it's like to each his own. If it gets you to the end of the trail, that's that's all that matters, right? It's true. It's very true. 
Yeah. I've had some, I've had some bad experiences with food on the trail. And like, for me, just, I, I get the, like the high altitude, like appetite suppression thing a lot. And so like, I'll go like a day where I barely eat anything and I'm like, oh, I feel great. And then the next day I just crash. So pop tarts, like you can keep eating pop tarts, you can keep eating Snickers bars. And it's just like, I know this is not doing much for nutrition, but you know, as, as a 42 year old man who is like, you know, like the weight doesn't come off the way it used to being able to just eat whatever I want. There is some appeal to that. So I will say this in defense of pop tarts. It's not something I would ever eat outside of a hiking trail. So it is a real treat too. We have so much in common on that, Scott. So it's really appreciated. (laughs) Solidarity. Yeah. Scott, thank you so much for being on the show today. This was a great talk and we've learned so much about how we can make our experiences in national parks and for following trail descriptions so much better. So we really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you so much. It was great talking with you guys. Thanks for all the great tips, Scott. You're a great resource for day hiking and for getting the most out of a national park visit. And we really appreciate you being on the show with us. You can learn more about Scott and find his guidebooks on his website, Scott Turner Hikes, all one word, scottturnerhikes.net. He has a great blog on there with tons of great trip reports. And again, you can get his outstanding guidebooks for Zion, Bryce, Sequoia, Kings Canyon, and Joshua Tree on there as well. You can also follow Scott's adventures on Instagram and connect with him on Facebook at Scott Turner Hikes. As always, we'll include links to these places in our show notes, which you can find by going to the Gaia GPS blog. All right. Next week's episode is going to be extra awesome. You might remember Thomas Gathman, a.k.a. the real hiking Viking from one of our earlier episodes. Well, he and I recently finished a 75 mile section hike of the Uinta Highline Trail in Utah. And around that time, we decided that together, We want to sit down and have a conversation with one of Viking's good friends and a very well-known name in the hiking community, Zach Davis, a.k.a. Badger. Zach is the founder and editor-in-chief of The Trek, one of the best backpacking resource websites out there, especially for thru-hikers. Zach is also the writer of the book Appalachian Trials and the host of the very popular hiking podcast, Backpacker Radio. So, we made it happen. Next week... Me and Viking are going to kick back with Zach and shoot the breeze with him about his background, what drove him to create the trek, and talk about any and all things backpacking. It's going to be a fun show with a lot of laughs, so make sure to check that out next week. All right. In the meantime, if you like today's show, please make sure to leave us a review on iTunes. We personally and lovingly read each one so we know exactly what we need to do to make sure that the show is the best it can be. And while you're at it, I humbly request, don't forget to subscribe to our show, too. It's really appreciated. Last but not least, don't forget to snag that great deal on Gaia GPS that we talked about at the start of the episode. Go to Gaia, G-A-I-A, GPS.com slash podcast to get up to 50% off on a premium membership. Remember, that premium membership includes National Park Visitor Maps, USGS Maps, US Forest Service Maps, Wildfire Maps, Nat Geo Trails Illustrated Maps... Tons and tons of great maps that you can refer to. Thanks so much for tuning into the show, everybody. Until next time, this is Shanty, and we hope you have a great week.